0: Welcome, everybody, to another Weekly Squeak, twice in one week. So I really cannot be calling this the Weekly Squeak. It's it's whatever it happens to be. Uh, My guest on this episode is A.B. Pariasami of, and we did just discuss how to pronounce a company name, and it's gone completely out of my head already, Minio.
1: That's right. I got it, good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... Just first, very quickly, a little bit about you. Where are you joining us from? I'm guessing from the time for me, West Coast,
1: America. Yeah, yeah Woodside, California. Okay, cool, cool.
0: And um, let's just do very quickly what the company is, and then I would just like to get a little bit about you. But let's just uh, let's hear a bit more about the company first. What What is MinIO? Mm.
1: MinIO is an object storage. Uh, think of AWS S3 is like a hosted service and MinIO is a software. So you can deploy it on any cloud, uh, whether it's public or private or edge.
0: And storage for what? I mean, maybe we'll get, we'll get into the details of that a bit later, but storage can mm-hmm. mean many different things. So what's it specifically storage for?
1: Yeah, I think you can fundamentally break the data into two types. One is the metadata, and then the other one is data, right? And metadata usually you would store it in a database or a message queue. There are different many kinds of uh, metadata storage, whether it's a graph data or like a key value data. That part I think developers understand quite well that there are many kinds of metadata store. Uh, The blob store, which is you store blob of information, that is where the object storage comes. And uh, what object storage replaces from uh, from a technology point of view, something that industry is familiar with, is a file system like NAS or a block storage like SAN. Block storage still has its place when it comes to accessing the physical media, but essentially file and block uh, are uh, are getting replaced by object when it comes to application data, blob data. There are many kinds. The blob data is is there everywhere, even for databases. How do you protect your data in for database? Previously, database ran on top of SAN or NAS, right? Nowadays, if you see all modern databases, they are built on top of object storage. So object storage has become the foundational primary storage beneath many of these applications and other data services.
0: Okay. Let's get into that in a bit more detail in a minute. I, I'd like to get a bit more uh, about you. What What's your background, or what brought you to to the idea, or joining the company, or whatever it may have been in the first place?
1: Okay, yeah. So uh, it, I, I would say uh, it, I didn't want to do this startup. It, uh, I didn't want to do any startup in the first place. I I fell into startup accidentally because of open source, and uh, my, I I have, I have strong principles towards what I do and how I do. And I was, uh, I couldn't find a job. So I naturally uh, fell into startups and from startups became an entrepreneur, but not by choice. Why am I doing it again this time? I only have my co-founders to blame. And um, it it was because of them. I'm doing it, but because, because I took the responsibility, I have to do it like you, whether you paid me or not. Right. And, um, my background is primarily in uh, in distributed systems. I used to be in the, the uh, computing space, but it's kind of hard to make money uh, paying your bills doing supercomputing. I used to be in the supercomputing space. It looks <laughs> then, like you should be able to, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> there is theory and practice, right? Uh, yeah, like my previous to previous startup, we actually built the fastest supercomputer in the US, and uh, still it doesn't mean you can. It, it will proportionately translate to dollars, and um, but it, it was a fun. It was a fun one, but um, I fell into the data problem because of customers' demand, and for me, it's not like I'm I'm fascinated by storage or distributed systems. Some problems that left unsolved, and it was simply an opportunity for me to go solve. And that's how I fell into it. But primarily open source distributed systems. Uh, and uh, for the last, uh, last 10 years or so, I've been focusing more on the data side. So let's
0: now dig a bit, little bit more into mm-hmm. to Min.io. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe this might be kind of asking an obvious question, but it's always a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Is first, where does it fit? Um, I mean, I, we, we, we kind of have it in the title around like hybrid cloud mm-hmm. and, and, and this kind of thing, but, um, where, where does it fit into that piece of the puzzle? If we're, if someone is using hybrid cloud and Kubernetes mm-hmm. and cloud native kind of infrastructure, mm-hmm. where does it fit into, into all the pieces that you might need? Mm-hmm. Like what sort of application would need to Mm -hmm. use main IO and things like that. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, so uh, where does it fit? Like, if you look at, like, say, what Kubernetes did to the computing side, right, in terms of generalizing the infrastructure through declarative APIs, when it comes to the data side, object storage has pretty much become the standard. And uh, most people forgot that AWS started with S3 first, and then because of demand that they wanted to host applications closer to S3 and besides, they like whatever AWS did. It's going to be cool, so they wanted AWS to also come into storage. So then came EC2, right? And um, Minivo's job is to go replace AWS S3 for the rest of the world. And when we started, it it, it sounded obvious to me, but it wasn't the case uh, when uh, in like in 2015, right? But they thought that there was if like public cloud means aws and when it comes to object storage it is aws s3 my point was that the world is producing so much data and not and bulk of the data is produced outside of the cloud only a tiny fraction of that data is produced from inside aws then what will the rest of the world do they're certainly not going to go to san or nas and the rest of the world will need an object storage that looks exactly like amazon s3 and our point was we can build we can do one thing better than amazon they can do a thousand things, right? Certainly, we can do one thing better. And uh, it it sounded like it wasn't useful from uh, from from general community point of view. Why would you Why would you build a, a AWS three replacement when there is AWS three inside AWS already? They didn't see the rest of the world. There was no Google Cloud or Azure Cloud, even though they were there. They were dismissed, right? And private cloud, forget it. There was only VMs, files, and blocks. There was no Kubernetes, probably OpenShift, but they would dismiss it again. Right? So my point was that, it, it, that it, first, we can build a better object storage compared to Amazon S3 because we are focused. Second, it will be useful anyway. It's just a matter of time, they'll find out. And uh, today, actually, even inside Amazon, we have more than like 3 million unique IPs run, running MinIO, uh, but it's actually very popular all across like in Google Cloud Azure uh, pretty much what we are now finding is kubernetes has become has made infrastructure a public cloud as a commodity what they want is Kucoddle Yaml whether it's public cloud or private cloud or edge they can control from their laptop they are looking at kubernetes as the one universal API and while it it you see that now it's obvious it wasn't the case when we started and the same thing when it comes to data side, they want to look at S3 API, like the YAML for Kubernetes. When it comes to data, pretty much the applications have standardized on S3 API. While it's not exactly an industry standard, it's the popular API, and that's why it's a standard. It's not really standard, it's popular by choice, right? And uh, this is where Minio comes and makes AWS S3-compatible object storage. Wherever you are, it is like you would run your own Redis, your own Elastic, your own Kafka, now, object storage becomes part of your stack. And where application developers are finding it really convenient is once they bring Kubernetes. In fact, the way they brought Kubernetes, by the time Kubernetes came, Minivo was already there. What they wanted was to modernize their application by containerization. Again, thanks to Amazon for forcing the cloud-native design, educating the industry why this is superior. Once they were convinced, they brought containerization to their application. Once the applications were containerized, Kubernetes was inevitable. They want to orchestrate those containers. Then came Kubernetes. But by then, Minaivo was already there because every application needs to store their blob data somewhere. Even if you have database, container images, logs, all kinds of data, they need to go somewhere. And the gold standard here is S3 API and blob store. And that's where Minaivo became part of the stack. What the applications team or infrastructure team did not want to do was... Some part is running as containers, but some part is either bare metal or public cloud service. They were now stuck with one infrastructure. So they actually brought Minio as part of the stack so Kubernetes can roll out their entire software stack on any infrastructure commodity and gave them the freedom. I would say it's more so productivity and uh, ability to seamlessly deploy multiple times a day. That drove this need more than uh, they thought about portability as as a priority. It came in as an afterthought.
0: One thing we haven't done very well so far <laughs> is actually <laughs> what what is object storage? What do you mean by object storage? Just because there's these different sorts of storage mm-hmm. types people might be used to hearing, you mm-hmm. know, a SQL mm-hmm. database, a noSQL database,
1: mm-hmm. uh, a
0: file database, um yeah. all sorts of different storage things. What does what what do you mean by object storage let's just clarify that quickly
1: yes actually I, it is something i it, it you would assume i would assume that everybody should know by now right like cloud is now so popular it started with object storage in the in the beginning and by now everyone should get it but it's i i i, I wouldn't blame anyone it's actually partly because of the uh, like conservative nature of the storage industry and uh, if you look at even the Wikipedia pages about object storage, it's quite confusing because previous. Yeah, I, have, to, I have it open, and it, it is a little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the reason for that is uh, before object storage came, there was uh, object-based storage, and that is that has nothing to do with object storage. I think the object storage idea is simply it's a blob data anything that any information that can be stored as a blob right it could be photos videos I mean, binary
0: um, binary data yeah yeah things, data, right? things that is an information basically yeah, yeah.
1: Right. right. in fact it it it's not everything is binary uh, but binary data. Yeah, can I, be I just structured.
0: realized the stupidity of the two things I said there. But uh, it's fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, like, even if you when you call it unstructured data, right? Actually, it's not stupid because they they would call generally they would call blob data as unstructured data. But even in your file system, for example, if you look at the photos, videos, name it, log files, even an Apache log file, there is structure in it it is I mean, why do they call it as unstructured data it is because unlike a database where you have a single schema that's uniform across all the rows in a file system or in an object storage it, there is no common structure Every file can be of, diff- it's not necessary, maybe it's all photos, but it's not necessarily common structure across all the files or objects, right? That's why they call it unstructured data, but unstructured data can also be semi-structured, can also be structured, right? When databases are built on top of object storage, in fact, they like Presto like systems, they would, Presto, Presto SQL can actually download these log files and index them in memory, whether it's Spark job, they would actually download a Parquet file and parquet object is basically structured content right uh, it is store pretty much all kinds of data where objects I, can, I think it's easier to say where object storage is not a good fit it's where it's not a good fit is if you are basically storing like kilobyte size or even like just like json documents and your entire data is so small and you you what you what you are looking for is like it's few bytes to few kilobytes and you are heavily dependent on the queryability right that's where databases are a better bet and you you store tiny information but more than storage the databases excel in powerful query interface whereas blob store or object store is it excels in storage at large scale but it is it has almost no queryability api you don't have database like interface there is some exception there. There is a predicate pushed on. You can actually send SQL queries to the log file. You don't need to download. It's more of like a, grep, a, a SQL grep, but ignore that for now. Database is powerful when it comes to query and it's it's weak in storage. Object storage is powerful in storage, but weak in query. But then to solve this problem, I'm also seeing more and more the databases are basically now overlaying on top of object storage, so they do, let object storage do storage and database do query. And it's actually, it's a good combination. And I think, I think Postgres
0: do something like that, I think, from memory or? I can't remember, uh, I feel like
1: I've seen it somewhere, but. I would say there are some actually experimentations going on where it really started from the database point of view, the OLAP databases, analytics databases, they started first. And then, uh, and they because they experienced massive amounts of data, like sc- data scale problems, uh, transactional data, like one terabyte Postgres database is actually a gigantic database, right? Whereas in analytics world, one terabyte is probably you begin with, and you, you see hundreds of terabytes to petabytes. And the databases are now beginning... Even the transactional databases, I'm surprised to see. Uh, I, I saw Intel and Facebook actually worked on MySQL backend where they would store the table segments of transactional database uh, on MinIO, and the journal would go to Kafka. And I'm actually now beginning to see even the transactional databases are looking at object storage.
0: Yeah, I feel like I might have seen that in Kafka in the past, but
1: yeah, it's been a little while since mm-hmm. I've looked at
0: Kafka. Um, so just to clarify something here because this is one of those the the whole kind of uh kubernetes cloud native containers world it's not mm-hmm. as as bad as it used to be, but there was always this problem with persistence because it wasn't really um, yeah. designed for that yeah, um, yeah so and obviously uh object storage you know if someone adds pictures, mm-hmm. they kind of want to keep them mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so. So does Min.io sit, I guess, mm-hmm. kind of to the side of the Kubernetes cluster and things like that and is, and is persistent or is it one of those things that somehow people are tearing up and tearing down each time or, or is it kind of like a, yeah. a service that Kubernetes is connecting to in your case? Yeah,
1: yeah no, I, uh, so the way you described it, right, that's, that was how I thought about Uh, the storage too. I thought object storage would be outside of Kubernetes where Kubernetes would just do the application containers because they are stateless and elastic and Kubernetes orchestration is profoundly useful. So it was logical for me to think that way. Uh, But watching our user community, they actually understood these problems better. And also, Kubernetes itself is not tied to stateless applications. Kubernetes is a general purpose, like platform of platforms. You can, whether it's even VMs or containers, stateful or stateless, Kubernetes is one unified declarative API mechanism to deal with the infrastructure. And the, the stateful applications came later and the state stateless applications already took off. But the reason why the the community wanted to run stateful applications like Kafka, Elastic, like Minio, rename it, right, Cassandra. They wanted the stateful services to also be inside Kubernetes. Otherwise, what happens is you roll out your application, suddenly a whole bunch of essential services are outside. They may be running on bare metal or they may be public cloud service. Now, the whole benefit of the container containerization and orchestration is lost because you cannot roll out your software on demand. And what they wanted was, they wanted entire data center stack. Their The whole dependency chain should be inside Kubernetes and they, and they should be able to define their application stack in their YAML file and roll them out. And roll them out on public or private cloud. This case, you can clearly see, if that's your requirement, MinIO cannot be outside of Kubernetes and then how does kubernetes solve what's the idiomatic way to solve this problem in kubernetes the, the when it comes to state uh, stateless applications it's pretty easy to manage so kubernetes already generalized that aspect but when it comes to stateful services let's take minio and say cassandra side by side right minio does erasure code so you can it can withstand multi node failure and even like say for example if you set a like say eight parity uh, erasure code, I can ups- I can withstand like eight eight nodes, but only I know exactly how many nodes I can tolerate depending on how the system is configured. Kubernetes does not have the context. Uh, Cassandra, for example, would be three copy replication. You can only take two two node failures, but the two node failures, uh, uh, like, so actually you can do one node failure within the three copies, otherwise you will lose quorum, but you can do one 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 failure across so there are some intricate details that kubernetes does not have the context when it comes to stateful services right this is where what kubernetes did it is a platform it's a very extensible system so it allowed these the the services to extend themselves in a way that they still look like a, any other service inside kubernetes natively and what that mechanism is called the operator pattern so menu operator would actually abstract these intricate details in a way that from your point of view you minio would look like any other application container you would just declare what you want and the operator would set up the minio part of it it's uh, and the node failure drive failure how they get reprovisioned when you upgrade them when you update them non disruptively and also another powerful thing the operator does is it gives you multi tenant self service model that when you pro- keep provisioning new tenants, the operator can take care of it. Like multiple clusters can be managed on the same physical infrastructure. So operator is actually a per- pretty powerful pattern where Kubernetes allows vendors like the database vendors and the stateful vendors can write uh, uh, their own extensions uh, uh, in a way that they all look like any other Kubernetes service. Now, as a result, you have stateful and stateless services, all of them natively running on top of Kubernetes, and the benefits are quite significant.
0: I do think my my um, reference is sometimes a little out of mm. date on the whole Stateful thing. It's definitely a problem that's been solved. I just I have also been <laughs> doing some um, a lot of uh, work recently with a company that kind of maintains mm. uh, these sort of services that sit. To the side of Kubernetes, like you, you kind yeah. of keep them there running mm-hmm. and Kubernetes connects to them re- when relevant and things like that. You yeah, know, yeah. Usually it's storage, but, um, yeah. so I just wondered, but I just would like to dig a little bit more into the actual kind of project and company mm-hmm. itself now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what came first, the open source project or the company, the commercial product? So,
1: so the, if you see Minero's case, it, we for us open source is a philosophy. In fact, I call it free software. Free software from the GNU project, right? Like the, I, I, there are two schools of thought. But for me, it's not open source. It's about practical and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's collaborative engineering. For me, I think it's more than that, right? It is. Uh, it is uh, for me. I'm doing this because I first when I learned about free software, it was a philosophy. It was a powerful ideology, right? That. That's what we were taught in schools, that whatever you learn, you share. And we progressed as mankind, I would say, or like both men and women, right? We progressed here by sharing and improving upon our ideas. So for me, it is a philosophical agreement, right? That's For me, that's how, if I don't do things that way, it doesn't seem right to me. And I told you early on, right, it's it's also my baggage that I have to do things that I believe in. And I felt strongly about it. And it's not just me. I think it's my whole team. They would, they would say they they all came here because they shared that same philosophy. But independent of that, we still have to make money, right? Minivo is a business and it has to make money. But I don't believe that as a business that making money and uh, uh, sticking to your principles and doing what is right are orthogonal issues, right? They, uh, they, they, you can still do, you can still, like every business, every brand has to do what is right and what they believe in and brand is about like it, 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 making money doesn't give you the right to do wrong cool things. Right. It's, it, so for me, it's, it's not about law or anything. It's actually an ideological, it's a philosophy. So we always believed in it. And that's why, that's why Minaivo was, Day zero, it was open source, right? When first the code was committed, it was open source. And till today, it is the case. And I have no intention of making anything proprietary because if I did any day, I lost my way. I lost my principles. I lost our identity, right? So it will always be the case, but we need to make money. And making money, I always found that holding customers hostage with license keys, I think those days are gone, right? It, you, customers pay you because they you solve a problem for them. And they believe in your brand and they want to establish a long-term relationship. And if you build a better product and if you build a relationship, if you build a powerful brand, you can always make money. And I found that open source actually did not come in the way. It actually helped me build a better brand. And uh, till today, we actually thank open source while we believe in it. it's it's, It's also hugely helpful from the business point of view as well.
0: And I'm guessing from, from what you said and from what I understand that mm-hmm. it follows a somewhat traditional-ish model for open source companies in that you have the, the, the project that people can run themselves mm-hmm. and, and host wherever, however they feel like it. And you mm-hmm. offer a hosted, um, version that is how you make revenue. Is that basically it? Or is there something more to
1: it or? Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's not like that, actually. Um, So, yeah, end of the day, customers want to own the data. They want to own the technology, right? And they look at public cloud versus private cloud as just infrastructure. And when it comes to public cloud, it's a cheap infrastructure on demand for them, right? In fact, I wouldn't say it's cheap. Like the, nowadays, they are saying that public cloud is more expensive than private cloud. But when it comes to productivity and ability to provision uh, through an API on demand, I think that's that's significant benefit, right? The I- IT would take like six months to provision your infrastructure. So I think public cloud is here to stay and it will continue to grow. It's still in it in, in its infancy. But When it comes to the technology part, they want to own the data uh, data layer and the technology part of the stack. If they they depend on the object storage from, say, one vendor like AWS S3, the moment you want to go to Google Cloud, you're stuck forever. You want to go to uh, Azure or on-prem anywhere, you're stuck forever. Many of these customers, they even wrote one version for AWS AWS, uh, S3 and one version for on-prem. It just became too difficult for them early on. But they found that by making MinIO part of their stack, they can roll out on any cloud. And they, what they are paying us is very much for the software. And what are they exactly paying? MinIO is, while it's 100% open source, it's under GNU AGPL v3 license. And a, you are building a open source software under a compatible license. And if you can self-support yourself, it is certainly 100% free in terms of freedom as well as the cost, right? But majority of our customers, actually almost all of them are building proprietary applications and they want to get a commercial exception, linking exception. They can. They want to get a commercial license so they don't have to comply with the open source license requirements. And in our case, we are the creator of the product and we own the copyright so we can actually dual license it. So we gave them, a commercial license. So what they are paying for is right to build commercial proprietary applications through the commercial license. And like any other software or any other product you buy, you expect support to come with it for free, right? Or at least included in the pricing. And that's what we we sell. What you are buying through the subscription model uh, is you are basically getting a commercial license plus support and SLA indemnification. It's like any, any other product you buy, a software product you buy. And actually, I'm
0: just looking at the pricing now. So there's a couple of other things here: um, mm-hmm. SLA, yep, you mentioned support, mm-hmm. yes, uh, security updates, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, panic button. What's a panic yes. button? We
1: mm-hmm. thought <laughs> 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 deeply about it. What should we call? Right? It's it's easier to just say it's make it obvious. It is a pan. It is literally like the name as it sounds. It is a panic button, and. Uh, it, 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 sub, what we call a subnet is a, a subscription network. Subnet is basically right. It's an end-to-end customer portal, right? Typically, you would come into a Zendesk-like ticketing system and you put in a request, and then you get like within 24 hours, 48 hours, you get a, a, a response from a t- typical knowledge base from a level one technician. Those days are gone, right? And if you took a, if you if, even if you took four hours for you to resolve these problems your data infrastructure down for four four hours, many of our customers can go out of business and uh, everything has to be real time. And uh, even for the standard customers, while the SLA is like 48 hours, most of the time they actually get pretty fast response. And uh, it's actually in minutes. And and when you get the response, you want to actually hear from the, hear from, the guy or the girl who actually created the bug in the first place or who understood the problem and, and is relating to you, what you are explaining the problem and how fast we can solve the problem together. This is where we found that any of the traditional ticketing system, support system did not work for us. It has to be real-time. And often, if you see the community Slack channel has 12,000 plus members, they got real-time experience, right? And I need to do better for paying customers that is where we built something that looks like Slack. It's real time, but and uh, it and it is a premium service for the customers with the SLA backing, and also it's all secure communication. But more than that, it even has automated diagnostics because you you're paying as paying customer, you have Call Home, so we can actually know every detail about your cluster, right? What version you are running? It has known vulnerabilities or not? Like critical bugs or not? You have problems in your hardware or slow batch, the new batch of drives are slow, all kinds of problems. We get access and we are able to do diagnostics. In spite of all of this, if there is a problem that we cannot solve, maybe there's a bug in Minivo code or some, for some reason that you cannot explain, subnet automated diagnostics cannot explain, you hit the panic button, right? Or anything, or if even you don't have your services down, it's a critical infrastructure and it went down. And, you don't like for you to not panic, right? You just hit the panic button. Panic button in its simplest term, it's an instant SLA. You hit the panic button, everyone in the org across the globe will come online, and uh, you are you are taken care immediately, right? It's, we want to actually feel like we are partners uh, in infrastructure management and operations. You hit the panic button, they even actually till today, every one of those panic button incidents where. Actually, are not our problem. It was something related outside of Minayo. But my point is, and even customers felt apologetic, like sorry, we had to wake up the whole organization. We, it's not, it's not your problem. But our, our thing is, no, that's the whole point of panic burden is sooner you bring to our notice, better it is, so we can together do a root cause. And if we are in a better place to help you, we are here to help you sounds
0: yeah it does waking up the entire company sounds like a very dramatic episode. oh so it was an accident it's like, oh dear oh yes okay
1: <laughs>
0: um and i'm just going to clarify something for anyone else who's listening or watching because it was something i had to clarify myself it's sort of You've been talking a lot about S3 compatible, and it, it was sort of something I had not really come across before. That doesn't mean you have to use S3. I had to clarify that myself. Yeah, um, and yeah. there's actually quite a lot of providers. It's I find it uh, almost um, a shame that a compatibility protocol is named after the original product. It's kind of like. You're reminded of it the whole time it feels a, yeah. <laughs> a little uh, a little kind of uh, sneaky on on amazon's part, but yeah. we do a lot of things in that way so we won't go there any further um what what are some of the the use cases um that like common customers or common industries that you you found people using this kind of, of product or project with
1: it's actually all over the map. It is, uh, it, it, uh it's, it is its strength and weakness. Uh, object storage is actually a horizontal play, uh, because uh, whether you are in healthcare or whether you are in uh, in consumer like gaming, you know all kinds of stuff. Everybody is producing data today, and uh, they all need object storage, and uh, it it also puts a lot of tax on us that. Now, it, it, from a business point of view, it's easier to go one vertical at a time. But b- because of the nature of the object storage, it is actually horizontal. And it, open source helps us immensely because by the time customers talk to us, we are already in production. They figured out how to do it. And uh, it, I, I can't name off an industry vertical that would not need object storage today.
0: It makes sense. I, I kind of knew that would be the answer, but it's always worth asking. <laughs> and as far as I can see, kind of in the past few months, uh, you've generally been focusing on um, improving the, the the subnet, the commercial side of things, mm-hmm. um, and and like health indicators for for those. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kubernetes operator is also quite new. Uh, mm-hmm. Two days, <laughs> actually. So, I mean, before that, what was your kind of recommended um, uh, usage with Kubernetes before the operator, or was it that um,
1: that you just improved the operator recently? Uh, maybe I misunderstood. Yeah, so I, I'll explain how wha- what we are doing and why we are doing, and then I will go into the operator part. Right? How how the operator evolved. Um, so, the, if you see our focus. In in, in the recent times, almost like last two years, and it's now, I would say the next three years, I would continue to invest heavily on supportability. This is operational support, right? And I find that software itself, right, it's not, writing code is actually pretty easy, right? Because you're creating bugs. (laughs) Fixing bugs is very hard. Finding them, fixing them, supporting them. Many organizations always start, like you even hiring QA engineers, Someone who cannot become a software engineer becomes a QA engineer, right? And support someone who cannot. So, well, it's how the industry operated, and it, customers are frustrated with it, right? Actually, support is harder uh, the, than even QA, and QA is harder than writing code. And uh, it, for for me, if we cannot if we cannot operate at scale, uh, we have a problem. The 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 strength is also its its challenge. Because we have enormous uh, community rate right? and we opened up the subscription network and customers are signing up like every day, every week. Like It's just now beginning to grow. And anything we do, we, cannot, we have to think at large scale. Otherwise, we would fail as an organization. The last thing I want is I took your money and I'm not able to take care of you. Uh, if the brand falls apart, right? And the problem we have is we don't have much time and we have to do it at large scale. How do you solve this problem? You have to invest in software to do all the things that humans, software can do better than humans. Supportability is very much a software problem. And we invested a lot of effort in bringing supportability into the product itself. And also the stuff that we would do some <clears throat> like in terms of support, operational support has to be digitized. And that's, If you see is where the subnet, all this health button, uh, health diagnosis, all of these capabilities came. So we can handle a large number of customers with the same level of SLA, same level of uh, uh, white cloud service, the law we call. And uh, 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 that will continue to be our priority. And now uh, uh, while supportability is there, there's other part of supportability Investment in supportability is reducing our load so we can handle large number of customers. The other side of the table where customers are there, before an operator, you would hire DevOps and devops actually like stick shift they want to be in control they like to script, they like to script everything and it gives them a job security too right so i think more than job security i would say in the devops world they love doing this and it's control and you can't argue with stick shift versus yeah. automatic
0: yep yep, yep. Right. it makes you feel like you need it yes i mean it's kind of yes, a yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah you're yeah. in control and
1: and it, 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 i think every auto engineer will tell you that Automatic has become so much superior that stick shift cannot beat automatic today, right? It's true when it comes to infrastructure automation too. I think thanks to Kubernetes for consolidating around one framework and now there, now industry has accepted Kubernetes as the standard. Before it was very difficult for us. There was Cloud Foundry, there was Mesos, Docker Compose and Swarm. There were Ansible, like endless supply of these infrastructure automation frameworks. And Kubernetes gave a nice framework and declarative model that solved the problem for us. But, and, and then still what happened was, if you want to build a multi-tenant object storage infrastructure before the operator, you would actually deploy, a, you would write your YAML file. You will tell, here are, say I know that I need a eight, eight I need eight parts. Here is a CPU network and drives. You would create these uh, CSI volumes or the persistent volumes, Provision MinIO cluster and you got a cluster. Another application team came to you and asked, Hey, I like that. Can you give me object storage too? You provision one more cluster. Basically, you have a collection of YAML files. You have 10 clusters, 10 YAML files. You want to upgrade, update, you're you're doing everything pretty much yeah. manual. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. That's where GitOps comes, and you you are familiar yeah. with that that model. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and um, the, the I've seen the operator thing pop up more and more yeah. recently. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. Okay, okay. Now where the operator uh, comes. Right? So the operator part comes and replaces a bulk of the job that DevOps used to do. Why did why why is it important for us? Because I don't want customers to depend upon. right? Well, there are some customers who are pretty tech savvy and they like the control and they have that ability always, right? But we have better knowledge of how to do non-disruptive upgrades, how to do uh, scaling, all of that, it's better to be a software problem, like it's part of the product, then I'm asking you to build part of our product, right? We have better better knowledge and understanding. So by productizing the DevOps part of it, the human operator, by digitizing it, that's exactly what an operator pattern is, as the name sounds. It, it basically turns human operator, that is a DevOps job, into a product. But that way, now I can handle large number of customers who cannot hire DevOps. So it's all about scale. Our one theme, overarching theme between everything we are doing is how can we reduce the burden on the customer so they can focus on their business?
0: I like the way you also turn the kind of the scaling around a bit, like most people talk about scaling their application, but you're you're making parallels between the scaling the application and scaling your business, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. And is that going to be the uh, the kind of next six months or so the similar plan in, increasing your supportability? Another phrase, I quite like you said. Is that yeah. going to be the the plan for the next six months? I guess.
1: I think it, it, it's something. It's so even the operator, for example, right? Some of the, the core community members will be like, "What's the news? I've been using your operator, right? The way we do." We, we, we it's not the, only in the proprietary world you do things in secrecy. You don't publish your roadmap, and uh, you have this. Uh, yeah, you, you you have basically everything is done in secret. So because your competition cannot copy, Minerva is pretty much an open book. Every code it goes. Uh, what we will probably talk about publicly, like uh, uh, from the press point of view, you'd if you go to, if you watch our GitHub. It the code would be there, right? The way we do. We, uh, we we do a lot of experiments we also throw away a lot of code we have in a, a a good part of our code we throw it away because we see code as a baggage but what the press release marks a, a statement that this is here to stay, this is the official approach, this is where all our investment will continue, continue to evolve. And the operator, we started like watching how community started doing things like that and learn from the community, start investing and get a get a feedback like on a continuous rapid prototyping model, like on an iteration, iterative model you learn and it, it, let, it, let it reach a stage where, okay, now it sounds right, it sounds right to customers and users, This is here to stay. Now, that's when we go talk about it. And that's how the operator operator evolved in a series of micro experiments. And it evolved a stage. Now I can say, this is here to stay. This is the official way of doing. Similarly, supportability will continue to evolve. Uh, I, I, I I still find where we are, while we are ahead of others, we are still nowhere closer to where we want to be. I think it'll supportability will always be a, a, an important part of the business, and uh, I would say, like even three years from now, if you ask me, I would say still we haven't done enough.
0: <laughs> well, that is possibly a, a good statement to end on. Um, we should clarify the the website is min m i n dot i o, and obviously it's open source primarily. So any well. I guess you'd have to have a, a good use case. But if if any of this appealed to you, you can pop along and um, there's uh, instructions in your documentation also on GitHub to get running on. In fact, you, you have, I think one thing I noticed, you have quite good support across the the board. You can run on bare metal, which involves your local machines as well. Um, Kubernetes, Docker, there's sort of a mm-hmm. lot of options. And you also have a yeah. lot of SDKs in multiple languages as well. So those kind of integration points are, are pretty... Uh, Pretty good across the board for the whole development stack. Um, I see, I think most of the code bases go if people are interested in um, yeah. contributing as well. Yes. Um, and, uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you in particular, is a a method you prefer or, or not at all?
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I'm here to help the community, right? So they, I, whether it is. Uh, twitter or linkedin or any any means like a uh, yeah I, i'm i'm all ears i want to i end of the day uh, even if just any hearing any appreciation it makes us feel good right i, I i'm always i would love to hear to uh, i would love to hear everything the community has to say even if it is bad news i would rather hear it first